listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Gonna ask the ushers to come forward right now, and, and they have Bibles in their hands, and encourage you to turn to the book of Titus as we'll be looking at Titus chapter one as we started this, this new series here. We started it last week called Hope for the Church, and uh, we believe that that uh, there is great hope for the church, and when there's hope for the church and it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, then there's also hope for you and me, and there is also hope for this world, and, and not just a, a wishful hope, but a confident hope. Biblical hope is a confident hope, and so we're looking at uh, working through the book of Titus, and it f- comes in your Bible after First and Second Timothy, and if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Just turn back the other way. Um, now, this morning, I want to start out by just asking you a quick question. How many of you have ever broken a bone in your body? Raise your hand. You've broken a bone in your body, okay? A bunch of you. Keep your hands up if it's been multiple bones at times that you've broken, okay? A number of you have had multiple breaks and fractures, okay? Good to know. Well, these things happen in life, and I want to show you a nice little video. It'll cool you off a little bit on, in this hot weather so far of our son, Nate, a few years ago fracturing his, his wrist on, big, on a, a ski hill at, uh, or a slope at uh, Big White. So take a look at this right now. All right, here it comes. Wait for it. Wait for it. There we go. And so that nice little tumble resulted in a green stick fracture. And you'll see kind of uh, the before and the after of the fracture and then after the fracture has been casted and, and what they had to do to that. And, and in order for them to put the fracture back into place and to put a cast on it, they had to put him under. They had to knock him out. And in order to do that, it, uh, it required just some, some painful um, setting back into place. And so the best thing was to put him out. Now, the most exciting part of this venture for, for us as a family, at least for me personally, was when he came out of the anesthetic. And, and just his action, we have some incredible video footage, blackmail. I asked, and I begged for some of it to be shown here today, and he says, Dad, that would cost you just too much money to show. I was just even a little bit, and, and, and you know, just wasn't willing to budge, but when the day that he gets married, um, it, it, it will be there, I am sure, and, um, and uh, the, there will be nothing held back at, at that, and uh, I, I mean, part of the craziness when he came out of it was he sang the entire song of O Home on the Range. We were shocked that he even knew the song, and he sang it through to the nurse uh, and, and to the other medical staff there, and again, all caught on video. I mean, six or seven minutes of gold. And, uh, but, but, but setting that aside, uh, what we're talking about here is a bone that is fractured or broken needs to be put and needs to be put back into place, needs to be set back into alignment. And as we get to verse 5 in Titus chapter 1, we're going to read there right away, so be ready to roll in that and follow along in your Bibles. It's important to have Bibles in, in your hand and uh, to follow along with God's Word. Now, in, in verse 5, we're going to see uh, Paul is talking to, Tim, or to Titus, the, the, the church planter, and he says in verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. 
And those words, put what remained into order, are compound words in the Greek, in the original writing of the New Testament, where we get our word ortho from. And ortho means to straighten out, to align, or to correct. And so Paul is telling Titus, you need to straighten out which is broken, which needs to be realigned, that is set out of place in the country in in the island of Crete. And we talked a bit about that last week, and those messages are online, available for you to listen to, our first message in this series. And and as Paul is telling him, set things into order, that beautiful Greek island, the island of Crete, incredible tourist destination to this day, and and just a beautiful place in the Mediterranean. However, the beauty uh, was there back then, just as it would be today, but things were super messed up, as we talked about last week on that island. It was like a Las Vegas meeting the pirates of the Caribbean sort of culture there. Very rebellious, subordinate, a lot of mercenaries that would live and, and, and work from there. Mercenary soldiers. And, and this leaked, this kind of attitude and culture and mindset of immorality and cheating and stealing and just craziness leaked into the church. And, and, um, and it was... They were new churches that were established there. So this was part of the culture. And so Paul is telling Titus... Set back into place, use some ortho, set it back into place what is broken, what is out of alignment. And, and he tells us how he's going to do this. He's going to say, don't write a manual, don't do this or that, don't build a church building, don't get you know, a, a killer worship band, that's not the key thing. The key thing that you are to do here, as it goes on in verse 5, it says, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So along that island, there were multiple church plants that had started. Paul had been there earlier with Titus, preaching the gospel, and, and people getting saved and baptized, and, and, and by the way, we're having a baptismal service the, in June, it's in the e-news, and if you have not yet been baptized as a believer in Christ, I encourage you to do so. That's what was happening in the island of Crete. That's what's going to be happening in the Okanagan Valley as people trust the Lord God as their uh, personal Lord and Savior. We follow in obedience. People were doing that. And so these groups were forming. They were meeting in homes, and there were these home churches throughout the island. And so now he's telling Titus, appoint elders in every town. Basically, every church needs to have some elders. And so the first order of business for Titus was to train up and appoint local elders, as we will see. Now, you know, loved ones, we just need to understand. Please listen. This is so important that we get this out right at the front here. A biblical, God-glorifying church does not start and stay focused by accident. It just doesn't happen just because. It doesn't happen by mistake. If the church of Jesus Christ is to be all that God has designed for it to be, then we need to follow his blueprint on how we are to to build and to establish and to what a church is supposed to do and to become. In in the book of Corinth, another crazy church that Paul was writing to, um, and and we now have the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We also know that he wrote some other letters. Some of um, They believe one of those was a very sharp letter that he wrote to them. We don't have a copy of that, but we have 1 and 2 Corinthians. He even talks there about worship 
that things need to be done decently and in order. It needs to have a plan. There needs to be a plan in how the church is directed, how it's built, even, even in its services together. And it's so important that we think biblically when it comes to church, not according to culture, not according to popular trends, that we take the word of God, we examine it, and we see how we can live it out best in our culture here today. This is what we're going to talk about this morning, living biblically when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. And when we live biblically, when we think biblically, and when we live biblically, there is hope for the church, which means there is hope for you and me, which means there is hope for our world. Recently, I heard of a family in our church that had quite the breakfast discussion as two young boys were having a discussion with their dad. One of the boys said, hey, there was a boy at school who was telling us that, that, that one day soon, the entire uh, ice in the Arctic is going to melt and it's going to flood the entire world and we're all going to be... Uh, be flooded out because of all the ice melting. And, and so the father, uh, very wisely, asked his boys, well, what do you think about what this boy was saying at school? And one of them said, no, that can't happen because there's not a, an, enough ice, and even if it all melted, it would never flood the entire earth, which, I, according to National Geographic and scientific studies, that's true, that if it all melted, the entire world wouldn't be flooded. And so the boy at school was wrong. But the dad asked the second son, what do you think of this? He says, no, it can't happen. And listen to his response. He says, because God said that he would never flood the earth again. And I heard that and I'm like, right on. That's thinking biblically. That is what we are to do when it comes to, you know, these things that come up at school, when it comes up in the life of the church, when it comes up to, to anything in our lives, that we would think, first and foremost, what does God's word have to say? And this is what we see. This is why Paul, in setting things into order in the church of Crete, he is saying, hey, we gotta, we gotta do things biblically, and we need to do it in order, and here is what you are to do. You see, God's word has the answer. It has the blueprint. It is the instruction manual for our lives, for marriage, for family, for how we are to run our businesses, as far as our sexuality, gender is concerned, science is concerned, and, and for the building up of the local church as well as the church throughout the entire world. God's word has the answer. And we must think biblically. In understanding what God's word has to say, and as we understand, as we hear God's word, as we read God's word, as we immerse our lives in the word of God, we then adjust our minds and our thinkings. In, in Romans 12, Paul said, don't be conformed to the pattern, to the, to the culture of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How is our mind renewed? Through the word of God. By thinking and then living biblically. And so we adjust our lives to follow and to honor and obey the word of God. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a super exciting subject. We're going to talk about thinking biblically when it comes to church elders. And this is a super timely uh, topic for us. As next week, Lord willing, we will be installing our first elders here at Hope Church. I'll say more about this at the end of the service. But now, oftentimes when we think of the word elder, we might think of various mindset and, and certain concepts or certain people come to mind when we think of the word elder. We might think, first of all, well, an elder should be old. When we hear the word elder, we just think automatically old, white hair, white beard, you know, and, 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 and talks in a low, deep voice. 
they don't have to be old. An elder does not have to be old, although in 1 Timothy 3, uh, Paul does tell Timothy that an elder should not be a new believer. They must, they, they must have some spiritual maturity about them. Or maybe when we think of the word elder, we might think of the guys in black pants and a white shirt and a tie, and they come to your door, usually in twos, and they have a little name tag, and under their name tag it says elder. And so maybe you think of them. No, those are Mormons. Those are Mormon elders. They're, they're not on the same team as us. They're, they're very different than we would be. They believe totally different. But, and so that's not elder. Or maybe when you heard, hear the word elder, you kind of think cynicism or skepticism starts to set into your mind when you think of the office of the elder because of some negative things that have happened happened, hurtful experiences in churches past where elders have been domineering or unloving, prideful or, or clearly unqualified and biblically disqualified to lead as an elder, and yet they are still elders in that church. And so you kind of get your back up against the wall when we start talking about elders, or you've been a part of a church split, and you've seen some very sad things happen in the body of Christ. So today it's vital, though, that we do think biblically when it comes to this very important role, office, support, appointment in the church, the very first thing that, that, that Paul tells Titus to do is to set into place some elders. And we're going to see what that looks like. Now, before you think that this is a, a sermon is a snoozer and, and maybe doesn't apply to you, and, and you know, uh, or you're going to kind of think, oh, I'm going to get out my checklist and I'm going to check off and see how these elder candidates that you have here in this church, you know, those that are coming forward, how they do in this area kind of thing. Um, or else maybe you're thinking, oh, great, sermon on church government. What am I going to do? How fun is that? And yet I want you to think this again because it's the word of God. It's living. It's active. It's alive. It's a good word. And it's a word that we need to hear because what Paul is talking about here and what we're going to read here in the characteristics of an elder in a church are basically he's talking specifically yes to elders but what he's really describing here today is progressive sanctification which is the journey that looks that each one of us as followers of Christ that if you are in Christ this is the progression that we should be seeing in every one of our lives and and God's word in other places speaks to these characteristics either generally or very specifically that we're going to talk about here today so really what Paul is doing is describing a mature Christian so thinking biblically today we're going to talk about for elders and for disciples it's for you as well this is for each one of us and so not only is, is this a checklist for elders and for potential one-day elders in the life of this church and other churches uh, that we may have a part in, in helping to plant, Lord willing, this is a checklist for all of us here today. And so really the question is, how am I thinking biblically? How am I doing as a follower of Christ? And this morning as we work through these verses, would we all be asking the question, where are there gaps in my life? Where are there areas where I am falling short in light of God's revealed word and written word here for us this morning? And so as we dig into this passage, the first thing that we're going to see here is the number one priority, the key thing here that Paul is telling Titus about is, it, when it comes to elders, is the key priority of having local elders. Key priority, local elders in the life of the church. You might want to write that down. That's our first point this morning. There are generally three words that you see in Scripture to describe the office of the elder. You'll hear the word pastor, or you'll see it in scripture. 
The word elder and the word overseer. Now, those words, those three words, and sometimes even bishop is thrown in there, are words that are used synonymously in Scripture to to describe the office of the elder that we're going to be talking about today. Now, each one of them, pastor, elder, overseer, as well as some key verses that you might want to write down that that give further insight into this, um, these are uh, just the, the various roles that God has outlined for his church. The role of pastor is the role of shepherding and and feeding and teaching the congregation. The role of elder is leadership and teaching and and, and having authority to, 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 to do that. An overseer is to lead as well as to manage and give oversight and protection. And so we see these, these words in Scripture. Here's something else that elders, we believe, it's biblical, this is thinking biblically, that elders are to be appointed by other elders. This is something that that we see a New Testament pattern for. In verse 5, even Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every town. We see this in the New Testament, and we want to follow along. We see that elders were not voted in. They were appointed by other elders. And we desire as a church and the family of churches that we are part of to, to honor what God's word has to say here. Elders, about six years ago, appointed me, the elders in in. Harvest Oakville back then, now Hope Oakville, Hope Bible Church Oakville, appointed me to be a pastor elder here in Kelowna. And I have been working together with them in training, in recruiting, in in looking out for and building up some elders here locally. And so uh, this is the process that we see in Scripture, and this is one we want to follow. But then you say, but what about we as the people? What about we as the people? Don't we get a say? Don't we get a vote in this kind of thing? Yes, you do. Very importantly, you do. That's what these last 30 days have been about, where these names were put forth back in the month of May, about three weeks ago now, or three and a half weeks ago, I believe, or four weeks. Um, these names were put forth, and you've had an opportunity to respond, give a thumbs up or uh, or not sure or a thumbs down on this. And, and we're thankful for the feedback that we've received from you, and, 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 and we, we've heard from a number of you, and that is a great thing to be able to hear. And, and so if there's issues or concerns with an elder or potential elder, we need to hear that, and we need to know that you do have a say in this. And another thing that once we get some of this going on our website, it will be a website, but even a, a form if you're not web savvy. Uh, when that is up, kind of a form that you can fill out or a page on the website where you can bring forth the names of individuals that you see as quite possibly being a future elder here in our church. We want the congregation to have a part of this. But when it ultimately comes to the appointment of elders, they are sought out, they are um, trained, and, and d- the discernment is then necessary to see, does this person, is this a time in their life to be an elder here in our church? And so the congregation does play a vital role, but ultimately we see the biblical pattern is elders appoint other elders with the help and the encouragement and, and the approval of the congregation. Here's another thing that we see, a plurality of leadership. Notice he says, appoint elders in every town. Just not like one chief poobah in every town, in every little you know, church that there's just one elder, like I'm the sitting reigning elder of this church. No, it says elders. And whenever you see the word elder in the New Testament, unless they're talking specifically about one person and singling out one person, 
It's always in a plurality. It's always with an S. There is the elders that, that um, as Paul says, appoint elders in every town. And, um, and, and again, we just believe that that is important, that it's not just one person making the calls. Because one person left unchecked is dangerous in anything, and especially in the life of the church. And so together as a plurality of elders... They share the responsibility, and they also share in the authority of the church. So now let's read, setting all of that up in verses 6 to 8 here of Titus chapter 1, and we're going to see some of the characteristics of an elder. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And so the second thing I encourage you to write down, we see, first of all, the key priority, having local elders, but second of all, thinking biblically about elders and disciples is about character, about having godly character or godly commitments for that of the elder. And, And where does... Uh, Paul starts, he starts in the home. It says, if anyone is above reproach, and he gives some listings and some things within the home. Then again, he says this word, above above reproach again in verse 7. Now, the word above reproach is a scary word. Because this is an overarching qualification that we see for an elder in the church of God. It can't be a guy who you put on the stage or on the screen, you know, or, 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 or put on your website as an elder, and, and you see him out in, in the community, and he's someone who shames the gospel. It means that an elder is unaccused, that no one could bring a charge that would stand against him. When others hear that someone is an elder in a church, they would hopefully say, if they are above reproach, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense that that guy is an elder. Rather than, really? Really? He's an elder? Now, this does not mean that a person is perfect. This is not about perfection because only Jesus could meet that standard. But when there is failure, when there is a shortcoming, when there is sin, there's a humility and a repentance where there's regular repentance consistently um, in their lives and a desire Uh, towards uh, godliness and and to not um, falling back into that area in their lives, that there's that pattern of repentance and humility in their lives. Again, this is something that all disciples are to have. That for each one of us, that when they hear that you are a part of a church, you attend church regularly, you're part of Hope Bible Church, then people say, really? Huh. I guess they let in all people, which we do. But it should, this is a character-growing character quality in our lives, that the way we live and function, it is above reproach. But look at what else it says, verse 6. It says, the husband of one wife. So here's some things in the home. Now, there's a lot of conversation and confusion over this statement in verse 6. Does that mean that an elder has to be married? Well, no, because the greatest, the chief elder, Jesus, was never married. And neither was, it was believed, uh, neither was the Apostle Paul. He wasn't married. So what does this mean? And the best way to understand this and to put it into our context today is this means that the elder is a one-woman man. 
that, that there is a pattern of faithfulness in their lives, in their marriage, or in their sexuality. An elder, if married, is not someone who is flirty into pornography, has a roaming eye, who has eyes for his wife only. And if the person is single, it's an understanding that they're saving themselves with purity to be a one-woman man, that there are safeguards and accountability to keep you from falling into sexual sin and keeping their reputation in check. And see, this is true for all elders. This is true. This is something that all disciples, this is something that all of us, men, women, a standard of sexual purity in our lives, that is to mark the life of a believer. And this brings us to another question. It says, again, husband of one wife. So does that mean that a woman can be an elder? Well, it depends what church you attend, and you'll get a different answer when it comes to that. But I want to let you know where we stand in that area and where I stand personally, where Hope Bible Church and the family of churches that we are part of around this world affirms the following. We affirm and we believe that every leadership opportunity and position is open to women in our church except in the areas where Scripture excludes them. We have in our church and in our Christian community very many wise, capable, gifted women who can teach, who can lead, who can counsel, who have great discernment and leadership ability. God gifts women to teach, and He fills them with wisdom, and He expects them to use their gifts and their abilities for the good of others, and ultimately for his glory. And to use those gifts within the church, within society, within politics, within the workplace, on the soccer field, wherever they are, we celebrate strong and confident, yet humble, God-dependent, gifted women. We do that. But what we see here in the Word of God is that God, thinking biblically in this, this is what we see, that God has determined that when it comes to the leadership in the church, when it comes to the role of an elder or a pastor, that God has given this role to men. And so these two, in these two areas, exercising leadership as an elder over men or teaching doctrine over men are areas where Scripture is very clear that women are to be excluded from. And you can write down along with those other verses I gave you that just give some further understanding into this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. And all of us must understand, and please hear me in this, this is so important for us to be able to say with clarity and to understand it and to hear that this is not about inequality, but it is a matter of roles, distinctive roles that God has designed for His church. That God has created men and he's created women with complementary roles. We value our wives. In the churches that I have pastored over the years, there's a great value on the pastor's wives that have been on staff with us as well as the elder's wives. We desire their input. We uh, desire their wisdom in, in various areas, whether that's pillow talk or whether it's times that, that, that the uh, husbands and wives are together in meetings and prayer times. We value the role of women in that way very much. But from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches that men and women are differently. God has made us diff differently just on a physical level, but also when it comes to the roles. 
And this does not mean, and sadly it's become this for some, this is not about male dominance, this is not about superiority or inequality for women, not at all whatsoever. Today's culture battles will try to turn it into that. And Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 affirms that we are all equal in the image of God. And we are all equal, but God has just given different roles to complement one another, not to compete with one another, to fit together and thrive together. It's similar to the marriage relationship that we see in Ephesians chapter 5. When you read Ephesians 5, and, and I believe any good pastor who is doing any sort of marriage uh, teaching and training and counseling and, and preaching even from the pulpit from Ephesians 5, we hit this hard. And it says in there that the role of the husband in the home is to sacrifice and to give himself in the same way that Christ, using Christ as an example who gave himself for his bride, being the church, that husbands are to sacrifice and to give themselves, providing, spiritually leading, giving guidance and direction and leadership to the home. Again, not without input, definitely with input from our wives. And as your kids grow up, to learn from our kids, sometimes God has gifted our kids to be even wiser than us when making decisions. But ultimately, God has given us, as men, the leadership responsibility in the home. Husbands are to lead and to sacrifice like Christ. And in Ephesians 5, what is the role of the wife? To submit to her husband. In the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father. And we see in the Trinity, we see the Submission, the mutual submission between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the unity that was there. And the church is to be a reflection of the home. Where you have humble, godly, God-dependent men sacrificing themselves and leading within the home and within the church. I remember performing a marriage ceremony a number of years ago for a couple. And uh, she was a new believer and had many of her friends there that weren't believers in Christ. And, and, and we talked uh, through all of this. And then in the marriage vow, she even in the marriage vow said that she would submit to her husband. And they heard that word submit in my devotional. And, and, and in the vow, she said something, uh, there was something about to honor and to obey you. And one of her friends came up to her afterwards and said, Sue, what did you do? You're crazy. I can't believe that. Did you hear what, what the pastor said? And what, like, you can obey your husband? And she was just like, what kind of a, we know you got Jesus, but man, what kind of cult are you in? And the bride so lovingly and kind of laughed and said, hey, but did you hear what my husband's role is? He's to sacrifice himself. In the same way that Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed himself on the cross for the bride, the church, my husband is supposed to sacrifice and give himself and want nothing but my best. She said, to any guy who does that to me, I will happily submit to him because I know that he's thinking about me first and foremost. She probably explained it way better than that. And the girls are like, oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. These aren't degrading or old-fashioned views or positions, folks. Sadly, I mean, these, these verses have been used in very negative and legalistic ways for men to dominate and even abuse women. This is not what this is about at all. The church is to be a reflection of God's love and a mutual submission 
ultimately to him and to his word in this area. And as we submit to God's word in these areas, we honor him. Not only does he bless our lives, he bless our families, he blesses our churches. And so as a church, we celebrate the giftedness of one another as well as the differentness of one another and how God has made us and the roles that he has given. So we want people to flourish in the roles that God has given. And God will use that for his glory. All right, let's continue. In, in, in the last part of verse 6, it says, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and, or insubordination. Now, the word children here, is, it refers to, and in the Greek, it, it, it references young children, the young ones in the home. It says they are to be believers. Well, again, we, we, you cannot force a child to believe in Christ, to give their heart to Jesus Christ. It's not a guarantee. It's not a guaranteed outcome for any of our children. We can train them up in the right way, in a loving, caring, disciplined, godly disciplined way, and you can still have children who rebel. But elders are to teach and to lead their children starting at a young age, if possible, if that's when they have come to know Christ, in the ways of God, and that their home life reflects Bible teaching and Bible belief. And it's encouraged in the, and, and lived out within the home. That in the home there should be a loving discipline, a godly biblical discipline and godly teaching that happens rather than allowing rebellious, wild, out-of-control living. If a parent is like, oh yeah, let them do whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, and, and, and they continue that through the toddler years, through the school years, the middle ages, like, oh yeah, they'll figure it out, you know, and, and no discipline and just run around. This is what Paul is saying, that, that, that if kids are riotous is, is one of the ways to do this and, and, and just filled with wild living that the, that person ought not to be an elder within the church. Now, there are difficult periods and tough seasons in every home with children, but it's about loving and leading the household well. And so this is something we hope for, we pray for, we work towards, not just as elders, but even for each one of us uh, who, who would not be that? This is what we desire for our home. And, and we see here in Titus 1, as well as in 1 Timothy 3, that if an elder cannot manage his household well, he has no business then managing the house of God. And so these godly commitments start in the home. Even if the children are older and are not believers, for whatever reason have chosen not to follow Christ or aren't living for him, that they have a quiet understanding and respect for the word of God, that they've been trained and they've been, been brought up in that way. You can't, again, force people to believe in, in Christ. We pray that that would happen. But then we also see the elders' role in the home. We've seen that, but now we take a look quickly into society and, 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 and we see what is the elders' role there. Again, we see in verse 7, it says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Again, we see that word above reproach. And then Paul gives us kind of five negative characteristics that must be put off of our lives, that must not be present in our lives. And the first one, he says, arrogance. You would think, you know, maybe there'd be some other sin or, or some, something else that would take a precedent over arrogance. No. You know how much God hates pride. And when we see our sports figures on TV and the pride and the arrogance that they have, even some of them calling themselves believers in Christ, 
And you're just like, that does not fit. That's like oil and water. And same within the life of the church. Not a know-it-all, not arrogant, not a know-it-all, but teaches and leads and works and serves in humility and dependency upon God. Not someone who thinks they're God's gift to the church, God's gift to humanity, God's gift to the business place because I've got it all figured out. Don't follow people like that. And if you're someone like that, take that off. Get rid of it. Because you're not. God has made you who you are. Be humble before that. God is raised and is blessed, but he can also take that away. Or he can allow you to have that just like when the Israelites wanted manna and they just took it and he's like, I'll give you manna. No, they wanted the meat. They weren't satisfied with what God had given and started coming out of their nostrils. I mean, and they were just so sick of it. And sometimes God allows us to have plenty to the point of being sick of it. To realize that our arrogance and our pride ends not in a good place. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the best remedy, you know what the best remedy for pride is? It's the gospel. Daily standing, positioning ourselves at the foot of the cross where we see our sin, we see our failures, our shortcomings, and there we deal with them and we see his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace as we ask him to forgive us and as we desire to turn from those sins. Next we see here in this list that, that, that he gives us not quick-tempered. And then later it says, or violent. This means that not easily provoked. Can't be someone who's always looking for a fight. You know someone like that at times? It's like you say something to them, like, what are you talking about? You know, and they get super defensive and they're back up against the wall. Or you can just see that, oh, you just annoy me. Not quick-tempered or easily provoked. Not someone who flies off the handle over silly things. Easily annoyed with others or with situations. Yes, there are times when an elder and disciples of Christ... That includes every one of us here, that we have to take a hard stand and a firm stand. And sometimes the blood vessel on the forehead may come out when we're talking as we're talking with, with boldness and with confidence. And at times we have to boldly stand, but we also do it not in anger, but we speak the truth with love. And sometimes that has to be firmly. Nor a drunkard, it says. Now, now this is as we see here and as we see throughout Scripture, it's not a sin to drink alcohol, but it is definitely a sin to get drunk. To get even to the point of starting to get tipsy, losing control, that is wrong. That is sin. And if alcohol tempts you in that way, run from it. Run from it. And this means that an elder or a disciple, a follower of Christ, were not to be drunkards. This means not being preoccupied and overindulging in alcohol. That you're known as the alcohol person, the beer person, the wine person. That, that this is first and foremost in your life. Is that really what defines your life? That, any, that alcohol or any substance that can have a control in our mind, in our thinking. We are to be people who are under self-control. The control of the Holy Spirit. Any sort of mind-controlling or altering substance... Avoid that, not to be a part of our lives. That includes cannabis, marijuana, um, medical reasons and, and purposes for that, but medical only, I believe, can be helpful, but other recreation, no place for that in the life of the believer. And, and, and um, we are to be people who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by other substances. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Galatians 5, is that of self-control. 
So not a drunkard or greedy for gain. This is where someone's primary purpose in life is money or materialism. And it just reeks out of their life. That it's all about the money, all about the paycheck, all about working hard. Yes, to provide for the family, but it's all about making a name for yourself. Not greedy for gain. So yeah, I don't, elders who are like that. No, disciples who are like that. We are not to, to be greedy for that, but to be eager to show and to share, to, to share our resources. It's being free from the love of money. Now, I love what money can do. Money can be used and leveraged in some very lovely ways, like in planting churches or supporting local and foreign ministries and missions initiatives in our community locally and around this world. Love using money for that. Money's lovely for that. But as elders and as disciples, we're not to be greedy for gain. We're to be giving and generous. We're about Christ, not about the dollars. Not about the bank accounts. So those are kind of five negative characteristics that, that we are to put off from our lives. But then he goes on and he gives six other godly characteristics or virtues that we are to put on our lives. That we are to, to take upon and, and to desire to live out. Look at verse 8. It says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable, just to explain that, basically a life and a home that is open to people. You have to like people if you're going to lead people. We're going to talk about this, Lord willing, next week a little bit more, that, that, that the shepherds, the overseers, the elders are to look like sheep and at times smell like sheep because they're with sheep. And we're in this together. And so we do life together. Another thing, a lover of good. This is where you love to bless others. To show kindness, looking for ways to love and to bless and to encourage others. And this is so beautiful when this happens in the body of Christ. And this is so beautiful when the body of Christ does and loves to do good to those who don't love Christ yet. This is a beautiful thing. Self-control. And then a little bit later it says discipline. So put on self-control. Put on discipline. This is about having good judgment. Common sense. In life and in the people that we lead and influence. Another two words in here, being upright and holy. This is simply living out God's words and commands. Separating more and more in our lives from areas of sin. And pursuing godliness and purity in our lives in, in a pursuit of him. These things are, are to be ongoing, deepening patterns in all of our lives. Now, if you want to notice something, we've gone through all of this list, we're coming to the end of the message, and we have not yet talked about the competency of an elder. We've just spent all of our time on the character of an elder, a leader in the church, and even disciples. You see how much God's word waits that we are people of character? People who are taking off these areas of sin and putting these other virtues and characteristics and growing those in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And finally, we get to the part here, this, this third point in here, looking at the elders' responsibility and ability. We're looking at the competency. We've spent all of this time on character, and now we see the competency. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder is to understand, hold firm to the teaching of God's word. It's seen the word of God as a double-edged sword to encourage, to bless, to exhort, but also to rebuke and to correct those who contradict it. An elder, we see here, and we see in the other passages listed that it gave you earlier, are to be able to teach the word, to be able to have an understanding of Bible doctrine. This means a growing knowledge of the word of God and Bible doctrine. And they use this to teach others. An elder ought to teach others, whether that be in a small group setting, whether it be from the front, or whether that be one-on-one, have an ability to articulate the gospel and, and, and the word of God. Does this mean that an elder should never be stumped? Well, if that's the case, I'd never be an elder because you could stump me pretty easily, probably. But the elder also has the ability and the desire to find those answers and in love show you the truth of God's word. Next week, Lord willing, we will look further into this subject as we anticipate an exciting Sunday next week, a, 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 a very important day in the life of the church where we install elders here locally. But now we're going to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And this, this morning as we have looked at God's word and we look at our church and we talk We'll talk a little bit later about elder candidates. We pray for future elders to be raised up and appointed. But more than that, we pray for disciples who will be raised up and live out the truth of God's word, that we would be gospel carriers. We would be people who carry the word of truth into this lost and very dark world. And so we look for this in the life of an elder, but we look at these qualities, these characteristics that we've referred to in our own lives, each one of us personally, outside of the office of a church. Again, these words are intended for all believers. And that together as disciples, as the body of Christ, we would keep growing and developing as his followers and have a greater love for him, his word, and for his teaching, learning to think biblically. So this morning, as we look towards the Lord's Supper in a few moments, I want to ask you a couple questions. Where are you falling short in what we've talked about? What areas this morning kind of like, ooh, ooh, that bristled up, ooh. It's easy to point out stuff in other people's life, but, but in my own life, it was like, ooh, I kind of got my back. What areas do you need to study humbly before the word of God or perhaps with some others or ask some questions about or, or sin to repent of and to make right and to flee from and to turn away from? What are these areas that have bristled up against me today? Where are there gaps in my life today between what God's word says in this area or in other areas in my life and where I'm at today? It's God's will for our sanctification. It's God's will that we would think and we would live biblically. In the end, whether you're elder, pastor, disciple, we desire to follow Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? God in the flesh who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death on the cross. 
for our sin, taking the wrath that we deserve, that our sin demanded as a punishment. And he takes our sin and he takes that upon him and he gives us his righteousness, his holiness, his purity. Jesus, he's the chief elder, the chief pastor, the one who founded the church and the one who we desire to worship and uphold and to follow his word and his teachings. In a few moments, we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is where believers, those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ, where we remember the death of Jesus on the cross. And we take our lives in examination, even this morning, we examine those areas in our lives, those shortcomings, those failures, the sin that we've either seen in this passage today or things we haven't even touched upon. Satan wants to keep us in defeat, but God calls us to something different. And we must admit our sin to God and confess that to him. Confess and repent of those areas in our lives. And as we accept this provision that Christ has made for us through his blood, his covering of our sin, we ask him to fill us anew and afresh with his Holy Spirit so we can live out his life that he desires to, to live out in and through us. Let's bow together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we recognize that there can be gaps in all of our lives in different areas. And we are so thankful that your son Jesus came to this earth to fill in those gaps to cleanse us, to forgive us, to give us the power and the strength to see those areas in our lives removed once and for all. And in those areas where we fall back into those areas of sinfulness, oh God, would, by your word, by your spirit, by the discipline in our own heart and accountability with brothers and sisters in Christ, oh God, would we be able to see victory happen, sanctification, becoming more and more like you takes time. It's a process. And would we commit to that process, knowing that you are fully in as we are fully in on this process. And so loved ones here today, take time to examine your heart. And we must remember that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then afterwards, he took the cup and he says, this cup represents the new covenant. He's saying, your sin no longer has to define you. My blood covers over that. His blood washes the sin, the guilt, and the shame and makes us new. He drank the cup of wrath so we could drink the cup of new life. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that your standard is high. And without you, without your grace, none of us could ever attain it. And by your grace and strength, may we press into the upward call. Would those gaps today in our lives, those areas of sin be repented of today? Would we experience your cleansing even as we partake in a tangible way of, the, of your broken body and your shed blood? And would our lives as we consume that this morning, would our lives adorn the gospel? Would our lives adorn you? 
not only in our hearts, but in our lives, would it be lived out for your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And as we worship the Lord together, when you're ready, you can partake of the Lord's Supper.